Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor at The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Zoe Grunewald, policy and politics correspondent, and Will Dunn, our business editor. They've been digging around in our virtual mailbag and have each brought a question for us to discuss. Zoe, you've got the first question. What have you got? Okay, so this is a great question from George, um, who has written in to say... Sunak is putting a lot of effort and political capital into one area of policy not represented in his five priorities. That area is AI policy, where he wants the UK to lead on both AI innovation and AI safety. There are reports he sees this as his legacy and reports he is roping the king into his upcoming summit. Is this the tech bro Sunak we've seen before or something new? This is a really interesting question because um, when I was at the Labour Party conference, which we just got back from yesterday, um, I was speaking, there was a lot of business representatives there and I was speaking to um, a number of them, especially in the tech side of things. And they were really surprised that Sunak or any other sort of senior minister hadn't mentioned this AI summit. It's the world's first sort of global AI summit that's happening in November during that conference, because they thought that this was something that Sunak was going to define as one of his priorities, but also his kind of legacy issue. Um, and they was kind of scratching their heads about that and saying Labour seemed to be more in tune with technological advancement than than the Conservative government were at their conference. And actually, Tony Blair and his whole thing about, you know, this is time for the technological revolution has really fed through into a lot of the stuff that Labour have been saying. Um, So it's strange, isn't it? Because Sunak has staked sort of a lot of his reputation in being ahead on AI, but that seems to have gone quiet, Will. Yeah. um, So I think the... um well, it's, it's, it's the world's first uh, AI safety summit, but uh, France is trying to get in there. With, they've got one, I think it's two weeks later. So there is there are a bunch of countries um, sort of pitching to be the to you know the the AI regulator home. And uh, I think we've seen from the laws that have led to the development of the internet as it now stands um, how important that can be um, in terms of. Um, your businesses and also like sort of geopolitics. So, you know, in 1996, um, the US passed uh, this law, the Communications Decency Act, which had this one little bit in it, uh, Section 230, which absolved internet service providers of legal responsibility for the stuff that they piped into people's computers. 
And that little bit of law has become this sort of defining uh, factor for the whole of, you know, it's passed long before social media was was really a thing. And, you know, all of our regulations, such as it is around social media, which is not much at all, really, we haven't mm. actually passed any laws regarding <laughs> social media. <laughs> or the, there's the online safety bill, but it's not actually law yet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that has all been shaped by that tiny little bit of law. So being there at the beginning can be incredibly um, influential. And I think you could also see it in terms of what it means for Sunak. Mm. I, th- I kind of think one, one thing that people perhaps don't really appreciate about Sunak is that he's, he's spent more time in finance than he has in politics. So he has spent more time being an investment analyst and a hedge fund manager than he has being a politician, let alone prime minister. So I think it's quite helpful to think of his decisions in that sense in that he is perhaps looking at the the five priorities as you know a hedge fund manager would uh, or an asset manager would have a bunch of safe stuff a bunch of government bonds long positions on defensive stocks you know investments and utilities and stuff that are probably not going to change in value all that much but hopefully will go up a bit and then they would have some more risky stuff to uh, that you know, they would, they would balance against that in order to um, to bring up the portfolio as a whole. So it's kind of, that's your your short positions on things or your speculative investments in something that might never happen. And I think to him personally, it could be a bit of that. It's the, you know, it's it's not the 20 quid you put on the, the favourite in the race. It's the one pound bet on the 100 to one outsider. So there's relatively low risk for him in saying this could, you know, this should be our thing because there are a lot of people who say, yeah, fine, sounds about right. Um, but also, um, it's a a way of, you know, having a bit of a, a bit of a punt on something that might be potentially, you know, economically and societally transformative and being there at the beginning of it. One more thing that I think is particularly interesting about this summit is um, the position that they are taking uh, in contrast to other people. Uh, particularly in the EU, is that they are focusing on um, what they call frontier safety. So they're focusing on the idea that, right, we're going to regulate this godlike super intelligence before it, it kills us all, uh, which, you know, f- when you first hear it, it sounds like, yeah, we should definitely, if there is <laughs> going to be a godlike super intelligence and it's going to threaten to kill us all, then we should probably um, have some laws around that. But it's also that is really what the AI industry wants politicians to concentrate on. They want politicians to say, right, we need to think about this as an existential risk because A, it looks, makes them look tremendously powerful. <laughs> like they've developed something that really could kill us all. Uh, and B, it distracts from... What they're the, doing yeah, the, until that regulation eventually comes in. Yeah, yeah, they distract the necessary regulation <laughs> of them nicking everyone's photos and all the books <laughs> and all the music and like whizzing it up into like new free content for, for big tech companies. Yeah. Well, what does it tell us about Sunak? Because he's got this, he has, our person who wrote in the question said he's got this tech bro reputation and he does, you know, he's got this focus on Silicon Valley. There was that story about the green card um, and he is someone, you know, who kind of has some of those um, parts to his personality. He does Peloton and Soul Cycle, and, you know, has that kind of, I suppose, character to him. Um, but it really does jar, you know, this kind of idea of someone who is a part of that kind of modern 
technocratic global elite jars with what he's trying to represent his party as, which is more of a nativist, little Englander kind of mindset, which you saw come out very much at Conservative Party conference. Maybe he's not the one saying all of those things, but he's certainly giving license to Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, and other similar voices saying those kind of things. So so is he in a bit of an identity crisis? I think so. I think that was quite a good, I think you described it quite well there. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when Sunak came in, I think there was a lot of um, positive chatter around the fact that he did seem like this sort of technocratic, quite modern prime minister. He was young, you know, he had these links to business and industry and maybe that would be really good for Britain. And we saw some stuff in the um, spring statement where he was talking about, you know, the um, investment grants. Yeah. Um, but actually, as you say, it's kind of jarring because it's a bit out of step with actually how the Conservative Party is coming across at the minute, which you're right, does seem a bit more almost like it's going backwards a little bit. It's reverting to tradition. It's being a, a bit more sort of, um, you know, it, it wants to engage less with the outer world and more sort of just Britain on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it does. It does feel a bit jarring. What I think is is interesting and it touches on what Will said is that Sunak, as you know, has worked in finance for, for many years. He is that that tech bro, he has these links to America. And I can totally see this being his pet project that he really wants to, you know, to be known for. And possibly it has been a bit disappointing for him that it actually hasn't been a priority for his party or indeed the country. We saw not that long ago, uh, Tony Blair did an interview in the Financial Times where he talked about the importance of tech and innovation um, and and harnessing AI and how these would become big political priorities. And in a way, he's correct. You know, AI touches on every single policy area, pretty much. I mean, it has so much potential to to make things quicker and cheaper and, you know, in, in... it could save businesses and government quite a lot of money. But people are very afraid of it. But it isn't publicly appetising to say we're really going to harness AI because people think, does that mean my job's going to go? Does that mean that I'm, you know, what does that mean for me? So you can imagine there would be quite a lot of discontent from the public about that agenda, similar to the sort of criticisms we saw about the green prosperity stuff. You know, it was like, is this out of step with what working people need right now? Um, so I think Sunak has had to backtrack a little bit on his ambitions in the sort of AI and tech space. And when when Tony Blair did this interview in the FT, I was wondering, oh, I wonder if that means that Starmer's going to lean into this in his speech, you know, if it's going to be like a new Harold Wilson white heat thing. And he didn't actually, did he? It was very much cost of living, um, housing, Tories have failed. Um, and I think that's because the public just aren't, they don't want to hear about how we're going to grasp AI. They want to do the sort of safety regulatory aspects, but I don't think they want to hear AI is the future because I, I think they don't think that anyone, any leader right now has grips on it in order to harness it for for good. Yeah. And when polling companies actually ask the public about AI, and I know this because I am actually one of the people who is polled oh. by Ipsos Mori, <laughs> and they've been doing a lot of polling on AI. Don't know on whose behalf, but I assume from the questions that it is a political outfit, either the government or a major opposition party. But what they often ask is about your experience of AI. And it usually centres around customer service bots and things. And people have very negative views about those. Um, And so I think you're right. I think the sort of gut reaction from the public is a little bit sceptical and suspicious of this thing. Not just because it might be something that could steal your job, but just because the, the experience that we have as it is already, can be quite negative and dehumanising. And particularly on the populist right, there is there is definitely a scepticism about technology 
sort of inching its way into our lives. You saw the reaction at things like the idea of vaccine passports mm. and um, even just an NHS app, you know, that, that had a little bit of backlash. So I think Sunak is walking this very difficult balance because he is trying to attract that kind of base, clearly, with some of the rhetoric you're seeing um, from the government. But he's also trying to marry it with his sort of Californian mindset. Apparently that advanced qualification that he wants to bring in instead of A-levels and T-levels, apparently that's based on his view of what works in the education system in California. So he does see things through that lens, but it's colliding with the kind of way that the party thinks that it, the only way that it can possibly try and claw back some votes in the election next year. It leads him to make some quite odd statements, doesn't it? I, I, <laughs> I thought it was amazing. In his speech, so he, he described Keir Starmer as the walking definition of the 30-year political status quo, I am here to end. So this is from somebody who went to private school, did PPE at Oxford, went straight to Goldman Sachs and was then parachuted into uh, William Hague's old seat. I mean, what, what a mould breaker. <laughs> <laughs> what a riposte to the Davos consensus. <laughs> um, and then, he's, and then he, you know, he does stuff like, like scrapping HS2, which is... On the one hand, you could argue that that is a an untechnocratic policy in that, you know, you're cancelling the, the CEO Express in favour of, you know, trains for normal people. Um, but actually, you know, the reason that he gave for doing it is is fiscal discipline, is ultimately a technocratic reason for doing everything. It's just like we've looked at the spreadsheets and mm. this is what makes sense. Yeah. You know, doing doing something untechnocratic uh, for profoundly technocratic reasons. So I, don't, I think he can't escape really his own fundamental uh, technocratic position. I would, I would agree with that. I think increasingly we're seeing from Sunak his image kind of, being perceived slightly less like less and less favorably from the public and i think that is he has a, a business mindset it seems so yeah he's looked at the books this doesn't make financial sense anymore therefore i'm doing the sensible thing and getting rid of it not realizing that voters don't see political decisions in that way you know it's not all just what is cost effective it's well actually what about all the money that we've put into it and what about how what we're supposed to do for the north and i think he actually doesn't seem very well versed in engaging with those broader political questions when he makes decisions. And I think that was what was really jarring about HS2 and the way he handled it was he almost expected everyone to say, oh, yes, good thinking. Well done. Thank you for making those calculations without realising that people were going to be really upset and confused as to why this had been allowed to go on for so long under his watch um, and then just be scrapped without any kind of regard for what it would mean for the public and industry. Yeah, yeah and let's just look at what, what's actually been achieved. So in his budget, Jeremy Hunt vowed to spend a billion over five years on AI and supercomputing. And we've had the announcement that the UK government um, has confirmed that the first supercomputer will be hosted by the University of Edinburgh. Um it's an exascale supercomputer. Sorry, yeah. And we all know what that is, don't we? <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining something with an exoskeleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of smashes its way around the country, uh, threatening people. It's really impressive. Um, so what is that, Will? And is it, you know, is it something for the UK government to boast about? Or? <laughs> uh, well, um, in terms of investing in um, computing power, there's a good argument for that as in investing in um, compute. Because if you look at AI investments around the world um, done by, by private businesses, uh, it really looks like a, um, a, you know, a, a one-horse, uh, maybe two-horse race. It's basically America, uh, you know, the VC investments 
uh, in AI in America are orders of magnitude bigger than almost every other country apart from China. And they're about twice as much as what's being invested in China. Um, so, you know, hundreds of billions being poured into to AI by private businesses uh, in, in the US and um, not as much everywhere else. But that's m most of that in recent years is um, into generative AI. So, you know, the kind of thing, the, the large language models and things like that you see in ChatGPT, that is a very difficult race for any other country to compete in. But other areas like, you know, quantum computing, um, more specific uh, kinds of AI, you know, the, the, the underlying sort of design of, of chips and things like that, which the UK has a very strong history in. In that way, you can make more of, you know, things like the, the UK strength is arguably, you know, it's, it's universities, it's, it's research uh, and development, um, you know, sort of not so much within companies, but the intellectual foundation mm. that we have for building those technologies rather than the enormous capital that's available elsewhere. Mm. And he's also said that he wants um, future computing projects to include domestically manufactured chips. Um, so, you know... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how far? How much of a world-beating country are, are we in terms of making chips? Well, <laughs> depends which sort of chip. Right? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, you know, yeah, uh, frying uh, in dripping, uh, still absolutely world-beating. Yeah, another area in which we've trounced the French. Um, but in t so we were a world leader uh, in 1978. <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the late 70s, early 80s, uh, you know, the British government was um, funding, supporting chip development in the UK. Um, so, you know, one of the first big fabs was was built here, the Ineos um, factory in the early 80s. Um, that company was set up with tens of millions in, in uh, UK uh, government investment. And then Margaret Thatcher came along and the part of government that had invested in it had was was privatized and uh, it was sold off to a British company and then on to foreign investors and it's currently owned by a Chinese owned company. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's Newport Wafer Fab, which does still make a lot of um, a lot of chips. Um, and so like I said, the the you know there are there are lots of people with with skills in this country around that area. But the thing about making the kinds of advanced semiconductors um, that are most highly valued, if, especially for industries like AI, is they're basically made in one factory in Taiwan because the, the, the supply chain is so uh, complex and involves so much um, technology that basically one company can make all along the way. So there's, there's one company that can make the machines, photolithography machines that, um, you know, use these mirrors, which are the smoothest objects in the known universe and blast light through tiny droplets of molten tin that are heated to a million degrees in order to etch the thing. I mean, no, nobody else can really make that machine or that factory. Perhaps, you know, in, um, in the years to come, America will be and then China. But um, for the investment needed for that, you know, for for a new place to to, to make uh, advanced semiconductors is in the tens of billions. So, like, it's a it's a very difficult thing for for any country to to pull together. And talking of the smoothest objects in the known universe, <laughs> what next for Rishi Sunak? Because you know, if Labour does win the election, will he um, will he follow in Nick Clegg's footsteps? He went to Facebook now Meta. 
the the rumour, and this is unsubstantiated, I'm not saying this rumour is true, is that he is eyeing up a job at Google DeepMind if he loses the election. And I'm I'm saying, I know as a journalist, we shouldn't say things that aren't substantiated, but I'm saying this because I think it's useful for our listeners to know what the rumour in Westminster is, because it tells you how Rishi Sunak has seen what his reputation is, what's going round. Um, so that's not, you know, I'm not saying that that's true. Do we think that he might have a um, a future in sort of tech? I think that's, if that's his sort of legacy project, you know, if AI really is his, his, you know, the thing he really likes to talk about and the place where he has his contacts, then it would make sense that he'd be looking at that kind of job after government. And, you know, the amount of knowledge he will have gathered being prime minister on how the UK's economy operates and how its relationship with investors works and the sort of things that a new Labour government might be looking at will make him very, very valuable, um, I think, to Google DeepMind or wherever else he might go. So, I mean, if I were Sunak, I'd be eyeing up a job in tech. Why not? <laughs> There's good money in it, I hear. So, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm sure he will um, be all right for money wherever career <laughs> <laughs> he chooses next. But... Um, I think, um, yeah, a cynic, um, me, might look at the way he is proposing to regulate AI and say, well, that sounds a lot like the way in which Silicon Valley uh, is proposing to regulate itself. <laughs> um, so I'm sure he has the, ver- you know, I'm sure he really believes that a godlike superintelligence will emerge and that we will be able to like make laws that will persuade it not to destroy us. So, you know, uh, full faith in him for that. But also, you know, it, coincidentally, um, he is talking about um, things in the, in the same terms mm-hmm. that, you know, companies like OpenAI are. The reason Nick Clegg got that job was because he was not only, you know, a British lawmaker, but he was um, close to the European lawmakers mm-hmm. the, who were Facebook's primary concern with regard to how they're regulated. So in terms of were I an AI company looking at... Yeah, hiring Rishi Sunak, that's the thing that I would be hiring him for, whether or not he would still be an influential part of the conversation around how AI is regulated. So I guess that, you know, that Bletchley Park summit, we'll have to, you know, put on a good... (laughs) He'll have to get closer to Europe, basically. (laughs) We could be be seeing the Brexit policy changing dramatically as uh, Sunak comes closer to losing an election. Yeah, yeah, or or to the US, I guess, you know. So the EU and the US are both sort of preparing their own AI regulation laws and the extent to which he can demonstrate his involvement in those processes will be key to, like, the UK's position primarily, but also perhaps his, his future. And after the break, you, Will, are going to introduce your question. Just give us a clue on what it's what it's about. So we're going to bring in a another New Statesman power list. Not another one. <laughs> <laughs> if you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. This week on the New Statesman podcast, on Saturday, Zoe Grunewald reads Jenny Kleeman's fascinating feature about the murky world of AI therapy. On Monday, we're running a special episode looking at the deepening crisis in Israel and Palestine. And Anoush and the team will be back on Thursday with their analysis of the latest in British politics. Follow or subscribe to the New Statesman podcast on your favourite podcast player. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube Music and more. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, well, what's your question? So this is a question from David, thank you David, who says, I suspect that the NS won't be doing a centrist power list. Uh, This is after our um, left power list and right power list, which you may have seen in our magazine, um, out of a fear of self-parody, if nothing else. But would the podcast like to suggest a few figures who might make a centrist top 50? Great question. Thanks, David. I yeah I mean let's indulge David and pick a few people who we would put on a centrist power list which is not something that we're going to be putting together I don't think anytime soon. I found this really difficult. I was trying to uh, work out who I could put on our list because most of the centrists or the major centrists are already on the left power <laughs> list which tells you something about where centrism is mm. is today. Um but my pick is going to be Paddington Bear. <laughs> I think he's the top centrist. That's Brilliant. so good. Because yeah. he's a patriot. He has, mm-hmm. um, you know, marmalade sandwiches and afternoon tea with the Queen. But he's also an immigrant and very liberal on immigration. <laughs> and I think those two things really do define what a centrist is in this country now. And I can, I can imagine him having like a rest is politics style podcast with Rupert the Bear, where they're like, you know, chatting, chatting about stuff. And it could be called Bear, Bear, Bear Necessities or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> the Bear I would Facts. listen to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it would do really well. <laughs> Well, mine isn't as clever as that. Um, I didn't, again, I really struggled because everyone I was thinking of was already on our left power list. So, um, and actually this man may be as well, but I do think he is a centrist voice. And so I've picked James O'Brien from LBC. Um, I think LBC is a really interesting radio station in that it gives so much um, power to the voices of the callers who who come in. And when you listen to James, so he was a very dominant voice during the Brexit years, often in opposition to quite a lot of his colleagues on the on the airwaves. I think that um, dynamic, that comparison of James, you know, against Nick Ferrari was quite interesting. It was quite um, influential. Well, I think he was the first viral centrist dad kind of, wasn't he? I think he, he was. And yeah. I think he, he leans into that. Yeah. He does... He, he, you can sense he's annoyed about things when he talks through issues, but he never calls for radical change. You know, his, his, all his values are very much based in sort of just justice and tolerance and can't we all just be a bit nicer to each other in a way that probably frustrates people on the right and the left mm-hmm. in, in equal measure. Um, I think he's, he's an excellent communicator, both, you know, both writing and verbally. Um, and I think he, you know, LBC, it's got growing reach. I think James O'Brien gets 1.4 million listeners a week. Wow. And he's always against Nick Ferrari as well. Um, and yeah, I just think he, you know, he leans into his privilege into a very, in a very self-referential way you know he acknowledges it but he also gives voice to other people but yeah he never calls for anything too radical which I think puts him firmly in the sort of centrist liberal bracket um, and I just think you know LBC it's, it's got it's got great reach it has a lot of people tuning into it a lot of people across the political spectrum giving their voice and he's just the sort of central conduit through through which they all speak so um, my pick yeah James O'Brien yeah, I think that's a good one yeah I'm surprised he wasn't on our left power list actually. he wasn't okay good yeah. I had to double check <laughs> Um, so I actually found this um, very easy because I just went to the podcast charts, which is almost <laughs> entirely composed of centrist ads um, in their second uh, careers, other than um, the 
the uh, the wonderful uh, podcast on which we are currently <laughs> appearing, No Sanctus Dads. Yeah, we're yeah. just extremists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we do have some very extreme positions <laughs> at, the, at the New Statesman. Um, uh, so, um, but I think I chose, my pick was based on a more cynical definition of centrism, which is defining it as the pretense that there is such a thing mm-hmm. as a middle ground in politics. So you don't get a pilot or a surgeon um, saying, well, look, let's, let's you know, sort of have a kind of reasonable position on what it is that they are extreme believers that what they are going to do when they're operating on a brain or <laughs> landing a plane is um, the right thing to do. And I think so are politicians. And I think, you know, you see that in people like, and I think we have seen that most particularly in people like David Cameron and George Osborne, mm-hmm. who, you know, came in uh, pretending to be like pretty much the same as the party who had previously been in power. Yeah. Uh, you know, Cameron described himself as the heir to Blair, but um, but weren't, you know, they, they had, their policies were radical and, uh, and they, they enacted radical change that yeah. they, they had an extreme belief in. So I think um, George Osborne sums up true centrist power, which is the power to sort of maintain a reasonable demeanour um, while absolutely trashing the country <laughs> and then sauntering back in with his top button undone and saying, that, guys, let's just do an affable podcast about <laughs> whose fault this all is. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, and I think anyone who listens to George Osborne's podcast should know that they are complicit in the, the laundering of austerity. Um, so, yeah, George Osborne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, do you want to take Paddington Bear off the list with that definition then? Yeah, Seems yeah. a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah. Paddington, the, the biggest <laughs> chancer of them all. <laughs> I think no, I think he, you know, he he clearly has his yeah, Paddington is is uh, is a bear of of, va- of true values <laughs> whereas centrism really is the position of avoiding having to say mm, that what your yeah. values really are. <laughs> I think we should make this list now. Yeah, we yeah. should. Yeah, let's yeah. go and talk to George, George Eaton <laughs> yeah. after this. Could I, could, I have also, a meltdown. could I throw in a couple of other nominees? Uh, one which was really obvious, which was Ed Davey. Uh, I find a very interesting politician, but also, you know, in demeanour sums up that kind of, look, guys, can we just sort this out kind of mm. um, approach to politics. Um, you know, let's put on some waders and just... <laughs> Go and sort the sewage out, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to put in the Princess of Wales as well, because in, in our power lists we do this mix of politicians and cultural figures. And I think, you know, the, the way in which her and, and the Prince of Wales have kind of taken over as the sort of the centrist royals, mm. you know, pre- again, pretending that like this, this incredibly reactionary, strange <laughs> institution that they... Uh, are you know at at the the head of or near the head of you know is a kind of middle of the road reasonable political uh, yeah construct. we care about nature and mental health yeah. and you know yeah yeah all good ones I, I think they're really good thanks so much for bringing um, more serious answers to the table than mine <laughs> um, and thanks to everyone who submitted their questions as well they were great great questions this week and we do read them all so please keep them coming in if you'd like to send us a question you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Zoe Grunewald, and well done. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.